fifth and final conversation with Reddy has just taken place and I cannot believe I had the same feeling when I came up towards the end of season one. It's like, what will I do when I don't have my monthly three-hour conversation with Reddy? I will just have conversations with him without recording. We have gone into some... I'm not even going to say potentially sticky, but sticky topic today because we're recording this on February 24th, which is the day when uh, Russia and Ukraine are bumping up against each other. Um, and we go into that. We speak about violence and how violence actually is not all bad but that the way that we do violence today, our modern culture, somehow has gotten too far away from us, from our sensory experiences, I think. So prepare for some, some tankespian. Um, and know that in no way are we trying to be disrespectful. Neither me nor Reddy. I think we do play quite seriously with this topic of violence, which is just what is needed. More play. That's what Reddy says. He says, I don't want world peace. I want world play. I'm all for it. So enjoy this, the fifth and final conversation with me and Reddy. about this whole idea about how people are constantly fighting wars. I think it's kind of connected to what we spoke about, this sense of belonging to a certain place, right? Like this idea that there's something that ties me to the land I was born in, the land of my ancestors, and there's something that, you know, like they bled for our survival and their blood was soaked into the battlefields thousand years ago, million years ago, whatever. And, you know, their sacrifice should not be in vain. So she, we shouldn't give up our sovereignty, our identity, our connection to this land. And that makes me wonder at what cost, right? Because there's this idea that our identity, our culture is somehow tied to the soil and that soil is worth fighting for is worth losing lives for, right? So it's kind of goes full circle. Someone fought for this land, so we should not give up this land and we should fight to get back that land. And, you know, so it just keeps going on and on and on. But from a play perspective, I wonder if we don't really need that reason or excuse to fight. We just love fighting, right? And in the past, like wars were a plenty, like there were wars all the time, right? And I, I wonder if that was more like a certain 
attempt at catharsis of this inner violent streak that we all possess. And it somehow was were used to purge that, to give that, that, that innate nature in all of us a way to get out, like, you know, get out. And, okay, it's done. We fought. All right, the victor goes to spoils and the rest of us are just going to bide our time and wait for our next turn a few years away, right? So it's almost like a seasonal thing. Every time I start feeling the itch and then I start picking a fight with someone and I'm like, all right, I'm just bored, not having fun. And this is one way to bring that adrenaline and that excitement and that enthusiasm and male perspective. There's that whole aspect of testosterone, right? If you you're just living life, doing domestic things and work and routine, mundane stuff. You're not giving that adrenal and that testosteronic drive. It's, you know, it doesn't find a way to come out, right? And that's when you have the Olympics and you have games and you have sports and like they're supposed to be like a, a safe outlet for that, you know, that urge to just go out and destroy and wreck things and break faces and, you know, break someone's bones and do all of that. Yeah. So I wonder if we can like find some way where we can play without hurting each other. But at the same time, it's, I don't know, it's kind of like the balance between safety and danger. How hard can we play that it's yet not dangerous? And at what point do we stop before it starts getting hit? And maybe it isn't dangerous, but rather lethal that we should be wary of. Yeah. Um, I have done a like complete 180 when it comes to violence. I've written a blog post how violence is never the answer and, you know, all of these things. And then reading my, uh, Ishmael the story of B and then my Ishmael re-listening to my Ishmael a couple of times, all of them books by Daniel Quinn. I just, I went to therapy once and I told Dominic, maybe violence isn't all that bad. <laughs> and it is the, I think that is quite rooted in, in most of us that are alive somehow, you know, pop the cat, he can ignore some cats and then other cats, you know, he goes <laughs> wild and crazy, you know, to make sure that they know that, you know, this is my territory rather than my land. It's my territory. It's, it's, it's that thing. Um. But somehow they very, very rarely hurt themselves so bad that they die. You know, and I think the same goes for the, the alpha male contents, contests of gorillas and lions and, and whatnot. It's like, yeah, they, they, they battle it out, but I'm not necessarily certain that the loser is killed. He's defeated, yes. He's wounded, yes. But not necessarily at least killed. And so
again, I think we've spoken about this or I've spoken about it with somebody else, how when the Europeans went to the, to the, you know, the Americas uh, and were confronted by these native tribes of, of indigenous people who do this thing where I'm in this tribe, this is our culture, this is our territory, and here's that other tribe and their culture and their territory, and they're, you know, perfectly fine. They can do whatever they want to do as long as we can do whatever we want to. But now and again, let's just shake things up to make sure that on a random basis, they don't take us for granted, you know? <laughs> So you, you draw first blood, basically, you know, you steal a few sacks of uh, grain or, or whatever you do. Right. And, and you go back home again, you take a couple of kids and a, and a lady or two. Right. But it's not, it's not this, I'm going to annihilate you so that all of you are killed. That is a very. European colonial, I don't know, aspect of it all that is not helped by technology. I mean, you know, 200 years ago, at least, you basically had to be in close, com you know, in, in touching each other for me to be able to kill you. I had to be close enough to see you in the eye. I could smell your fear and your sweat and your blood. That's how close I had to be to kill you. Today, you can be on the other side of the world. You can kill thousands of people by, you know, joysticking something or pressing a button and off things goes. So the distance, I also think, Make it easier to go to the kill rather to the first blood. Okay, we're drawing first blood. We've shown that we're bigger, better, and, and you know, stronger than you. And then you can kind of relax and settle down. So there's, there's, um, it's like there's an exponential rise in, in violence that I think is another type of violence than the violence that at its root core is probably part of the game of life, the way things are, um, much more than, than what, what we modern culture, what we do with violence that turns into this extreme kill, killing spree somehow. And I just want to throw in another piece of that. I saw yesterday on Twitter, somebody, it was DHH, um, David, whatever his name is, who runs, mm. um, 37 signal, if that's yep. what they're called now, base camp. Yep. Then he had written a post about the Canadian truckers. And then he got a lot of flack because he was saying that this is a violent pro or a non-violent protest. That's what mm -hmm. he got flack from. No, it's really violent. And he then sent out a new piece yesterday um, stating that 
we have to put violent on it because that is how we justify taking action. So it's like if we label an opposition, a protest, violent, then we can come at them with all our might because they are violent. And he wrote, I just skimmed the piece, but he wrote that um, that's why nonviolent protests are so powerful. Because there's this Be fine line between violence and aggression, right? Yeah. Because if you think of what Gandhi said, so Gandhi said, if someone slaps my cheek, I'm going to show them the other cheek, right? So he was like, that's my idea of nonviolence. Like, if you also look at it, it's an extremely aggressive move. You're not covering when you get hit. Your initial reaction is to like, you know, cover and fear. But that's not what he's doing. He's on the contrary. He's like, oh, you slapped me here. Now, how about this? Like, take another shot. Like, is that all you got? So it's, it's, it's extremely aggressive, right? It's just non-violent. There's that, there's that clear yeah. distinction. I'm not hitting you back. I'm not causing you harm, right? But it's extremely aggressive when someone hits you to show them the other cheek and say, oh, yeah, here's another shot. Let's see what you got, right? So even with this, it's like there's a sense of when you, when you mention the difference between wars of the past and wars today, it's like there's that sense of your actual skin in the game. You're in yeah. the battlefield. You're on the front lines. You're experiencing combat, right? Now it's like miles away, you know, in the past, it was like, it was right in front of each other. And before guns were invented, it was you had to be at arm's length to hurt someone. And even when you draw first blood, it's not likely, it's not necessary that you could kill someone with that first blood. The other person may get you with an even more lethal blow, which will kill you first or killing both in the process, right? So there's a sense that you are open it's an equal exchange of sorts, right? There's an equal exchange and numbers were one way of increasing the odds. But then there was always the possibility because you're fighting hand-to-hand -hand or weapon-to-weapon -weapon at close quarters, there was always the possibilities that the war could go either side. But now, like you said, things are, you know, just click a button and, you know, we already got all our guns pointed at you. They're like a thousand planes in the air. We're going to get you no matter what you do. This absolutely, it's almost like Dare I say it, there's no more fun in fighting. Like if you look at the playground, the first game every single child does is fight. Like, you know, you, you, you have a little infant baby, you give them your hand and you, the kid is trying to pull your little fingers, trying to smack it around. Like there's that sense of combative exploration with every object around it. Right, you give a child a little toy and the first thing in response is to break the toy, shake it around, fling it somewhere, try to break it in half, knock it against something, right? There's a sense of destruction being an innate activity through which the child learns creation, right? That destruction is an active component of the creative process, right? And I'm wondering that by leaving aside the actual you know, there's no combat left in war anymore. It's just like, like you said, click a button and nobody really knows what's happening. Nobody even knows. And you have a machine reading out numbers and saying, oh, we killed so many people there. You know, they killed so many of us. 
someone standing there on the, on, on the front line, next second they just vanished. They don't even know what hit them, right? Like there's no, there's no honor in dying when you don't even know, when you didn't even fight a battle. You didn't get to fight. You just vanished in thin air because something dropped on your head. Like there's no, you know, exploration of the combative drive to exert oneself to one's maximum potential, challenge the opponent. You know, it's my best versus your best. There's no experience of an engagement. And like in the past, you had the concept of even dying in battle is an honorable death. And you thank your opponent for giving you that honorable death, right? Like it was a game and the rules were clear. The rules of engagement were clear. The rules of what was victory, what was defeat, what is surrender, what constitutes a good death, what is that fine line that you never cross no matter what. All of these were explicitly laid out and the game continued, right? And now it's like, None of those rules of engagement, those rules of warfare, the, the game has completely changed and nobody knows. Least of all, the soldier has no clue what's happening, right? He's just being, you know, pushed into battle and he just does things on, you know, the, as a remote control, like, you know, he's just a puppet in the hands. Like, you know, someone had said that war is like, you know, the old man's game, the old general's game and the young man. The old generals just play and the young men just die. That's that's pretty much what war does. Like so you have a few old men just playing their pawns and trying to figure out, oh, is my strategy better than your strategy? And they're playing this grand game where the stakes are high and the, the young men on the battlefield are the ones dying without even knowing what was the move that they were a part of. They don't even know the big picture. Yeah. Just want to cut in. Are you recording locally? Because you're. And if mm. not, can you record locally? You are. Yes, yes, I am. Good. <laughs> your internet was a bit, bit wobbly there. So, when I hear you speak about this, I think about Matthew McConaughey and his um, biography Green Lights, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I've listened to it two or three times, I think. He speaks about a trip to, I think, Mali in Africa, where he comes out in this village somewhere out in the countryside, and he he enters a wrestling game with, like, the village champion, you know, this big burly guy, and he gives it his absolute best. You know, they go three rounds or something, and the, the big burly guy wins but Matthew is so confused because he's like lauded as if he's the winner turns out nobody has ever been able to do three rounds with this man so just the fact that he could be in it for three rounds was was a victory in and of itself it's like yeah we're all of a sudden the odds are getting even and and this how this the big burly village man you know, it's like, at least after, after a while, could see, you know, could honor Matthew McConaughey for what he had achieved, right? So that honoring aspect, um, and, and honor 
is a topic in and of itself that I think can be definitely questioned in many ways. But but in here it's like yeah, because there's there can be there can be good from it. There can be bad from from it too, like most things. But it's a mutually accepted contract in this case, right? Yeah. Like it's like yeah. okay, you yeah. and me, we go yeah. at it. And if I win, I get the spoils. If you lose, you could lose your life. But I will respect you. I will respect you because yeah. you entered into this engagement, this interaction with me. It's like, if I look at it from a play perspective, you and me playing this game, the odds are this isn't a safe game. This is a dangerous game. So you could die. I could die. But we're willing to play. We're down to play. And for that, I respect you yeah. because the game is not about victory. The game is not about defeat. The game is not about score. The game is not about winning or losing. The game is about playing. And that's what Matthew did. He jumped in and he played the game, right? Yeah. And that was <laughs> worthy of celebration. Yes. yes. And I feel like that's something we've lost. Like even with sport, we, yeah. we celebrate the winner we don't even look at the loser. In fact, we go in and rub salt in their wounds. Yeah. We go and, yeah. you know, Ridicule point them. the camera at yeah. them in their time of thing. And, you know, we, we, make, we make them feel like losers, right? We don't make them feel like winners for having engaged in that game, yeah. right? Yeah. Let alone war. I mean, if you look at it, like the whole concept of Western civilization bringing annexing the smaller kingdoms and taking over all of, oh, you little people can't control yourselves. You're always playing and fighting amongst each other. Let me take care of all of you. So I'm just going to vanquish you, kill a million or so people in the bargain, and then rule you, tax you, you know, suck your blood. And see, you're not fighting anymore. See, see, I'm such a nice person, aren't I? Right? There's the sense. And then, because you no longer have a hundred thousand people fighting amongst, amongst little tribes, they're tiny little battles which really don't have a grand significance in the scheme of things. You now have 10 humongous large players fighting 10 viciously powerful wars which can destroy large swaths of population overnight. Yeah. Right? So it's a question for a debate, yeah. like what's a better option? Yeah. Leave the little tribes to fight Tiny, insignificant battles which don't yeah. really destroy large amounts of the populace, right? But which is happening at frequent intervals because yep. people just love to fight. Or supposedly put an end to all the fighting and then one fine day when, you know, things can't be held down anymore, suddenly it erupts and then there's this one grand war, we have a world war, we have things like that, and then millions of people die. So... I wonder yeah. who's going to win that debate. Yeah, and he's like, you know, without having much argument for it, I would definitely say the first one has, I think, is a much more sustainable long-term uh, than the second one, especially coupled with technology where what is left is so devastated. Um, but I listened to our fourth conversation episode 44 um and what you pointed out about how 
a touch, an intimacy. There's like with strangers, I can shake your hand at most, friends I can hug, and then there's sex in the bedroom, intimate, naked, in and out, you know, that type of, it's like we have these clear boundaries. And I'm just relating that also back to this aspect of, of the technological warfare, perhaps you can say. It's like it is touchless to a large extent. And I'm not, uh, again, that's, it's like it's one way to, to not utilize all of our senses, to not make our experience be as felt as, you know, two people fighting. Yeah. You're going to feel it and you're going to smell it. And, you know, it's like, it's going to be there. It's going to hurt. But, but sitting in a, in an office somewhere, you know, controlling bombs or drones or, or whatnot. And then there's a high rise full of people and it just goes, boof, go on. It's like, it, it distances me. It, it cuts off the experience of it. I'm, I mean, I'm sure that it perhaps feels horrible for somebody like that, but it might also feel, hey, I did it. I'm, you know, it's like, I don't know. I don't ever want to be put in that position. Um, but, but it is a danger when we do, just as in the we're no longer allowed to touch each other. When I went to the embodied intimacy and I, you know, he's like, yeah, wrestle. He's like, how? I don't know how, and, you know, what can I do? How can I touch somebody like that? I don't know that because I haven't been doing it. So there's a link to, to the loss of sensory experience, perhaps, that I also think this distancing isn't it's not helping us it, it isn't like you know it's because i was just thinking if you if you replace coitus with combat it makes the same amount of sense because it's just that rawness nakedness you know you can't hide anymore right like when i meet people out in the street everyone has a certain persona which is a mask over who they really are. It's only when you get in bed that the person's real identity, their responses, the actual likes, dislikes, a lot of those things come out into the open because there's nothing to hide. I mean, like everyone is raw and naked. And I think the same thing with combat when you are engaged with someone in, in, an, in a life or death situation, you don't have the bandwidth to put up this pretense, this persona, this wear, this little mask, and oh, this is my personality. It just exudes itself in raw action right and whether it's horrible or exciting is something that each individual experiences for themselves and that create of am i happy with this excitement of you know being in battle in conflict in combat with someone and at the same time am i unhappy that i'm causing pain suffering violence onto another right that little tightrope, that little balance is something that each one figures out for themselves. And that's 
by engaging. It's like when you see, when I see these little kittens of mine, little puppies playing with each other, they're fighting. The first thing they do is fighting. It's like they don't even, their eyes aren't open, their hands and legs can't move. They're just like that. But the first thing they do is they're jostling against each yeah. other. They're trying to fight for their mother's milk. They say, no, let me suckle first. No, I'm going to get this milk first. You go next. Right? There's that constant, the first instinct is to fight. Right? And as they start playing these games of combat with each other, as they grow, they start hitting each other. They start jumping on each other. They start prowling. They sneak attack each other. They, you know, they're constantly doing that. But there's this, there's, it's incredibly beautiful to watch how they give each other feedback. If, if, the, if that swipe was too hard, it's like, oh, oh, oh. And the other one immediately is like, oh, okay. Like, it yep. depends, right? Some probably take a little bit longer. Some are more astute and perceptive of the pain they're causing. But they get it. They all get it. Because they're constantly playing this game and they understand, oh, that was too hard. Okay, I, next time I'm not going to swipe so much. Yeah, right? it's a calibration. That... It's a real-life calibration of sorts. Yeah. How strong Which am I? And what does, what, how much does it hurt if I do this and you go down? Okay, no more fun. <laughs> it's like, shit, I won't do that next time. I'll do half and see what happens. Oh, so that, that's the thing. I mean, like, how do we ensure that this calibration happens in each one of us? And I think the answer is to encourage more contact, more contact, more combat, because they're very close to each other. We can't, by separating ourselves from combat, we have separated ourselves from contact, right? And by separating ourselves from contact, we have disallowed or, or taken away the playground of combat, right? Under the name of, oh, it's violent, it's dangerous, it's bad. But by not allowing it, we've actually made it more violent and more dangerous because it's now repressed, it's unexplored, it's uncalibrated. Yes. And now it's going to burst. Yeah, and the uncalibratedness of it is, is kind of what, if I just, I mean, I know... I know basically nothing about it, but if I look at like gang wars, it's like, it is this aspect of the, of the modern way of doing war that makes it such a horrendous thing that wreaks havoc in many families' life because we're no longer just having a fist fight and you go down and I win and, you know, yay, blue's the one. Um, it is the, I'm going to kill you all by I'm going to shoot you with a gun. I'm, you know, it's like, so, so the, that calibration of sorts or the escalation that comes with not having calibrated makes it makes it more dangerous, makes it more violent and risky. And, and, you know, chances are it will lead to deaths. And they seem so uh, unnecessary. And, and, you know, as a white, middle-class, you know, well-educated woman in my, you know, turning 50, it's like, it's so far, the, the, 
the culture where that it's so far from me it's hard to to put myself into the shoes of a of a you know gang shooter and and just how do you come to that place because it's a different world and i i realize that and i understand that but there is something it seems as it's that's maybe a um a representation that can be easier to look at and perhaps less provocative to look at than us saying you know maybe we should have some wars <laughs> but but it's like cuz if gangs did it the way indigenous people have done it throughout yeah sure there would be blue gang over here with their culture there would be red gang over here and there would be some oh isn't it time that we you know let's show them that we're strong you know this randomized keep you on your toes but we're never gonna shoot to kill we're never gonna maim you in such a way that we then go into the eye for an eye tooth for a tooth because that just leads to i mean that just it just never ends but if it is this we're not kill we're not killing you we're just messing with you a little bit so that you know that you're not to mess with us and then in a while you'll mess with us a little bit so that we know that we're not to mess with you and we keep each other kind of on this same like same plane somehow yeah it's kind of like there's this excitement to be you know just life just gets boring right after a while life is routine life is boring same old things again and again but what if you had to live with the possibility that any time anyone could attack you right now there's this fear but there's also excitement because there's just two sides of the same coin like you have fear on one side now if you're not you can look at it and say ooh that's exciting imagine someone could sneak up and pounce on me right imagine me and my buddy are best of friends and you know we're just playing hide and seek i don't know when he's going to like jump out of the closet and like you know say you're in like right i mean it that's when the, that's a game right the only difference with real life and playing in the playground is the stakes are higher the consequences are real and people can die right now how do we how can we play the same games at a safer level how can we find these nuances between the extremes like does this there's right now even this situation everyone's like you know let's just stick to dialogue let's try to have conversations but think of it the other way around if if you were in a romantic relationship with someone and if are you telling me that there's no way it would go to sex and all we're going to do is just exchange sonnets and like you know letters of love and appreciation that's the same with saying that you know we're going to not fight to solve our differences but all we're going to do is talk you never get to the makeup sex <laughs> right exactly <laughs> there is going to be if the same thing happens in relationships like even the most ideal of relationships the most perfect of relationships there is a wave which goes up and down there's moments of ecstasy there's moments of complete despair there's 
moments of heightened conflict, there's intense interactions, there's heated arguments, right? There's all of that happens. And it's almost like we're trying to sanitize that out of the human soul and say, no, all we're going to do is go to the UN and say hi and nice things to each other and we're never going to fight. We're never going to fight. That's not going to happen. It's, it's unnatural and it's mm-hmm. unlikely. And the longer you keep up that pretense, the more intense is the explosion when it eventually happens. Right? And sports was meant to be an interim experience. It was meant to be like, okay, you and me, we want to, you know, we're going to solve this. Okay, not through fighting. I mean, like, if you think of the, like, you know, back in the day, I think in India, we had this concept where if a king wanted to wage war against another king or he wanted to expand his territory, he would just send a white horse out and that horse would enter any kingdom or any place. And if the other kingdom to which the, into which the horse had walked into wanted to fight, he, that was a declaration of war, right? If he didn't want to fight, he would say, okay, I'm going to be your ally and I'm going to pay a certain amount of taxes and then you take care of my security, right? So it was a bloodless way to expand and to annex lands. And if you look at it back in the day, you also, that was just one way of looking at this other way is like, you and me are fighting. We are like arch enemies, but you know what? Instead of killing million people on either side with a long protracted wall, losing money and resources on either side. Why don't we become best friends instead? Now that's not likely to happen because we don't like each other. So what we then do is we have a marriage of convenience. Your kid and my kid, they're married. And now because we're married, we're now related. And now as relatives, we can hate each other, but we don't have to kill each other in the back. Right, and we can also find some nice things to do with each other. Now there's the bond of kids that between us, you know, there's a mingling of blood. And seeing little grandkids from either side, this, you know, all of that uh, rage just melts and you're like, oh, little kiddo, come on over to grandpa, right? And it's almost like we've done away with so many of those different ways of dealing with conflict. We have left with only dialogue and war. That's it. Diplomacy or full-scale war. Yeah, which is kind of the same thing as this handshake, hug, or sex. It's like we, 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 we silo. It's like these are the ones that are available and nothing in between. Same here. Okay, diplomacy or we're going to bomb you to pieces. It's like, but what about... The rest. Oh, you remember that scene in Troy? So, you know, the two armies are facing each other and they're about to, like, you know, go into, like, full-fledged battle. And then the king comes up with a suggestion. He's like, okay, instead of putting all these men to battle, your best man versus my best man. Right? And then there's a huge burly guy comes out and then Achilles on the other side and then they fight and then Achilles wins in just one fell swoop. And the war's over. That's it. I mean, like, why couldn't Putin and the other guy just, like, you know, fight each other? I mean, that would be fun. It would be, like, pay-per-view and it will probably sell more than anything else. <laughs> I mean, where are the creative solutions? But, 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 that is actually a point, though. War is also a driver of 
the economics of our culture. So who wants war and who doesn't want war? Cause, cause the, the, like the war industrial complex is a huge, um, part of our global finances. So wait, if Putin and whoever were to fight it out fisticuffs, no, we wouldn't be able to sell arms and, and, uh, you know, bombs and tanks and airplanes and all of the medical supply and all of the, the uniforms and the shoes and the, this and the, that, and the other thing, there would be a lot of people out of business. <laughs> yeah. Like, I think someone just. I read this on Twitter, someone saying that, you know, there are no winners in a war. And, and that was absolutely right in the past. There are no winners. Or on the contrary, they're both winners because, you know, it was more like a purge of, you know, get out my violent streak, my tendencies to, you know, engage in manly warfare and all of that stuff. And now it's like, you know, there, there are no winners just, because there. you don't even know you didn't get the opportunity to fight. I mean, you just... You know, you just pulled the trigger and some, you know, you just played with your little finger and things just happened. Someone died. The experience of actually fighting for it wasn't really as intense as it was in the past, as, you know, intimate as it was in the past. And now you have just people dying and then things happening. Like you said, the real winners, it's like neither of the people who fought are the winners, but the people behind the scenes, the people pulling the strings, Everyone else profiteering from the experience of people and fighting. they are the winners. Yes, they are the winners. Precisely, right? the the yeah. the corporations and the organizations um, are the winners. Which you know you can draw it to to the COVID, the global pandemic aspect too. It's like there's no winner in the global pandemic. Yes, there are. Then Billionaires have gotten richer. You know, it's like. And, and so which kind of comes down to this root that I'm still, this is one that I am struggling with because I've, I've come to the fact or the point where I go, violence might not be all that bad, you know, now and again, it actually serves a purpose and it can be a part of, it is a part of the way of life but the win-lose game that maybe it's just that it's been so mutated from what is a, um kind of a part of the 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 way of life, it's like, okay, today it's my turn to give up my life because you need to eat and tomorrow it's your turn to give up life because I need to eat, you know, amongst prey and, and, um, and the people, the animals that prey on prey. What do you call those? Predators. Predators. Thank you. Prey and predators. It's like, there's a, a win-lose that 
I don't have to like put the win loose aspect on it. It can be more this gratitude aspect of it. It's like we are here to help each other survive. Connecting to Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, for instance, where it's like this the notion that that all harvest is bad. No, actually, they prove that sweetgrass fares best when there's somebody harvesting it appropriately. If you'd harvest everything, it's gone. If you don't harvest, it actually diminishes. If you harvest it just right, it thrives. So this, we are here to, to help each other live. And, you know, if I'm today, I'm the one who's prey. You know, yesterday I was the one who ate the carrot. Today you're the one having a uh, rabbit for, for dinner, right? But the win-lose that we have today, perhaps it's the same curve of exponential uh, growth as the technology of war has come to. It's like, it is win-lose on such an on such a scale, on such a thwarted, warped way that winners are just, it's just ridiculous. Nobody needs to have that much. And the losers are fucking lost. You know, they are dying because the loss is so grave. It's not, okay, you know, you got in two more good fisticuffs on me and you know it's like okay I'll have a few bruises but you know give me a week and I'll be back on track no you're down <laughs> it's almost like the desire to be rid of violence is an innate violent desire right there's this obsession like oh no violence let's put an end to all wars let's put an end to any no more conflict nothing let's all live in peace and harmony like, it's almost like that desire to not be violent is violent in itself because you're like, we have to end violence. We have to destroy violence. We have to kill violence, right? So in a way, the desire to be rid of it is in itself a violent desire. Act. Yeah. And, and that, that seems to be the reason why so many People were like, you know, the larger countries are like constantly like, oh, you little countries are always fighting amongst each other. We're going to take over your country and put an end to these wars between all of us because you're now all a part of us, right? We're going to take care of you. And when everyone's so busy fighting for their survival because, you know, they're being taxed, they're being oppressed, they're being bullied, no one has the steam left to fight amongst each other anymore because they're just fighting for their survival, right? Mm -hmm. And that is almost construed as peace, right? Because to an extent, this is why I said the opposite of war is not peace. Peace is passive. Peace is, is not an active thing. Peace is, is a vacuum, and eventually something's going to come in more often than not war, right? So the opposite of war ought to be play, not peace. And I just, if it's like, if you have a plot of land and you take away everything that's growing on it so that it's bare, 
that is kind of what we do. We take away all of the violent and we leave bare soil. Nate, which then would be peace. But nature abhors these vacuums. Nature cannot have a plot of land without something growing on it. Something will start to grow, and we call that weeds. You know, unless I've tended, I've sown all of the, the grass, you know, I want this to be a perfect little lawn. It's like, it's going to be what we call weeds, which is the violence. He's like, oh no, we can't have that. Let's tear you out. Um, oh, that's so interesting. I just kind of, it just kind of came together for me there. <laughs> um, that's beautiful, right? Cause like it's man's instinct to create beautiful gardens, manicured and pedicured to look like pretty pruned, you know, fences and hedges and everything shaped like little animals and statues and designs. Oh, look at that. Such a beautiful garden. Isn't that a work of art? Walk into the forest, any forest, any jungle, anywhere in the world, and tell me that isn't a work of art. But no, the gardens which we create because we planted stuff where we wanted them to be and we shaped them the way we wanted them to grow, that becomes a work of art. Mm -hmm. How is that not violent? How is yeah. not letting, you know, just letting nature do its thing? How is that wild? And how is our carefully manicured, chaperoned, pedicured spaces works apart? Yeah. It's care. It's like, yeah, there's violence going on there. That is, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that what we've spoken about is throwing people some tankers beyond that might be very, you know, hard and like no I don't want this to be at all and you know it's like we are just talking but it, it, it and and that's that's kind of the thing that happened when I when I had read my Ishmael for the third or fourth time last year and I came to Dominic in a therapy session he was like it was hard to even let the words out of my mouth, maybe violence isn't all bad. It was like, I can't say this. He's going to think I'm dumb. You know, it's like, there was so much stopping me, so much cultural shit, norms, rules, regulations, you're supposed to, ethics and morale, you know, all of that stuff, just going, shut up. You cannot say that. Um... And the more I think about it, it's like, it, it, it does make sense. And it, and it is this, maybe this is also one of those aspects of going with the flow or not going with the flow of like the effort that can be there when you go with the flow, when you use your muscles, when you're. Like, that's the one-on-one -on -one battle, uh, or at least the at-arms-length battle. But the, the, the war-industrial complex that we see today of, of Russia bombing Ukraine or whatever they're doing, it's like, it's this efforting 
it's like we've come away from the way of the world and and we're like that's that's like the formal garden that is like the formal garden i need this to look like this and so i'm gonna make it look like this i'm gonna pull out that tree and i'm gonna you know reshape this plot over here and remove the rocks over there and put them over here it's like it's it's yeah it's mind-boggling to think of but and it, it's it's hard to think of also because i can like the fear and the terror and the and the hurt and the pain and the loss that will come from this is like oh oh it's hard it's been, to hard to take in yeah. it it it's really hard to think of you know when you when to make a statement like violence is something it doesn't necessarily have to be called bad, right? Because it's almost like we assume that we're good human beings if we are not violent, right? And we assume that if we are violent, then we're bad human beings. The simplicity of that statement makes it all the more violent because we just immediately classifying, putting people, you know, splitting people apart, right? We're creating more room for violence, more likelihood of violence, right? There was this Korean movie I'd seen a while ago, spring, summer, autumn, winter, or something to that effect, right? And there's a story about this little monk boy who grows up with the senior monk. So the boy is just a little, maybe a five-year-old, and the monk is probably like 65, 70, and they're living together in, you know, in a remote, uninhabited island, just the two of them, in the middle of a tiny little lake. And the little boy goes out to play in the afternoons. He takes the boat, he rides to the, goes to the mainland, and then he starts playing around. And he finds these animals. So he finds a frog, he takes a big rock, ties it to the frog, and he watches the frog struggle because now the frog can't jump because it's got this heavy weight over it and the frog can't move because frogs jump to move, right? He takes a snake and he ties it up or he does something, right? So he goes around torturing these little animals, right? And he's enjoying himself. He's you know, he's besides himself with glee. He's just like, ha, 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 ha. The frog can't move. The snake is all tied up. So he's so happy, right? And he comes back home and goes to sleep happily. The, the monk, the older monk, follows him and then sees what he's doing. And he just quietly comes back home. He doesn't admonish the boy. He doesn't say anything. The little boy goes to sleep. He wakes up in the morning. He's got a big rock tied to his back, right? <laughs> and he comes up and he's like, what the hell is this? 
And, you know, the monk and him have an exchange and the monk is like, well, if the frog can, you know, you did it to the frog, I did it to you, right? And that's just the way things are. And so the boy gets the thing, drift of things, he goes back, you know, he unties them, creates this whole thing. And it's, it, he does, you know, he undoes everything that he's done. And then when he comes back, the monk takes the rock away from him as well, right? And it's an interesting idea, but the idea isn't as much as the stit for that as what struck me that it's innate for human beings to be violent. It's innate for a little five-year-old boy to be violent, to torture other living beings for one's own personal delight. I've done that as a little kid. There were these little dragonflies. I would tie a little thread around the dragonflies and hold them up like, oh, this is my personal you know, chopper and I'm just taking it around for a spin, right? And essentially, I mean, like how annoying can it be? How painful can it be? How disturbing would it be for that animal to be tied by a string, unable to fly away, you know, for an animal that's, that's its survival instinct at stake. I mean, very stressful situation, mm. right? And I did it. I enjoyed it. I thoroughly did it looking back. I mean, I was like, that could be like evil incarnate, but I don't know. Am I not? Am I the only kid who did it? Is that little Korean kid in the movie the only one who did it? If I, every person were to look back, they would find some streaks of violence deep within in their early childhood. Like these happened, and it's almost like we can't avoid these streaks in ourselves just to call ourselves good. We need allow them to come out we need to allow them to because they have their purpose they have their lesson maybe it you know it's a part of the process of learning that oh if i if i do this like it's almost like cutting the harvesting the grass right too much is too bad too little is too bad just the sweet spot just the right amount right now how it it's almost blasphemous for us to say that that there's a sweet spot of violence that is necessary in our lives. Not too little, because then, you know, you're just avoiding conflict because conflict brings resolution. Conflict happens when things are left unsaid, when things are left unresolved, right? And when dialogue is not doing enough to clear the air between two parties, right? That's when it comes down to fistcuffs because there you go, there's no other way out. I've tried everything else. This is just what I got to do, right? And that just means I'm not skilled enough through those nuances of that entire spectrum of engagement, of interaction, of debate, of arguments, of interaction between two people to find some sort of resolution. If I just bounce between the extremes where I'm not going to say anything or I'm just going to beat the crap out of it. Yeah. And you're not alone. There was a summer when I was a kid that we had what we in Swedish call blomflyge invasion. It was like the invasion of the flower fly is the literal translation, a little bee-like, but it isn't a bee. It just looks like a little bee. And we would, they were just all over the fucking place. We would tear the wings off and play hospital. Oh my God. So yes, I've, you know, I've had my fair share of 
of, of, of violent childhood behavior too. Absolutely. Um, and, and I mean, it's interesting to talk about this when it comes to violence, because I think violence is like you say, it is one of those feelings that we've kind of, it's so clearly stigmatized. We're not supposed to be violent. You're bad if you're violent so that it's like, it's, it's a bad feeling and there's good feelings, but all feelings just are. All of them just are. And there can be, you know, they can serve or not serve. There can be bad outcomes or good outcomes if you want to use those words. It's like, but we have collectively, culturally deemed some as just these aren't okay. They're outside of the bandwidth of what is culturally okay here to feel, to be, to behave. Um, which I think is, you can draw that to, to, you know, psychiatric diseases too. It's like, it's not, oh, there's somebody who is manic depressive or, you know, schizophrenic or something. It's a spectrum. That's also a spectrum, just like, and we're all on that spectrum somewhere. Um, but it's just like, no, behavior just goes too weird. So we cut it off and say that this is okay behavior in here, outside of the boundaries of that, not okay. You're sick. You're bad. I don't want you. Let's, you know, keep you down, drug you up, lock you up kill you off, whatever it is that we do, um, which, Ooh, and it, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I, mean, I was just thinking on what you said, because it's almost like in the past, you know, if you were considered clinically insane or medically unfit to remain in the population, you would be bound in a straitjacket, you would be locked up in an asylum, right? You would be electrocuted, lobotomized, and all of which were physically violent ways to confine that individual to, you know, an idea, a socially acceptable idea of normal, right? And at some point, we stopped doing what we deemed as barbaric practices, and now people are just sedated, which doesn't seem so violent because you don't see anyone in a straitjacket anymore. You don't see anyone locked up in asylum anymore, but then... Isn't that chemical sedation equivalent to a spiritual castration of sorts because that individual can no longer express oneself freely and effortlessly? Okay, assuming it's harmful to society, assuming it's harmful to others around, but to what degree? And by now confining that individual to, you know, a zombie-like existence completely sedate, isn't that violent? Just because we don't see physical constraints and restrictions and spatial restrictions, does that mean that this is any less violent just because it's chemical and we don't see the, the chains that bind the individual, right? And it's like right now, just because with, there's no exchange of actual blood because people aren't fighting on the battlefield with, 
barbaric weapons where you had like big wieldy axes and you know you know crazy weapons of war now it's just click a button and boom there's no more hiroshima nagasaki so nothing really happened it just took five minutes and then the entire city just disappeared see we didn't use any barbaric weapons it's almost no. like we don't see that blood flesh getting mangled and torn to bits so we don't feel that impact as much or it's easy to pass it off i wonder if this you know the idea that if people experience that for themselves they experience pain suffering discomfort all of that in micro doses would that actually prevent them from doing those in larger doses to others or to allow that to happen to themselves right by by staying away from any sort of experiences even at a micro level at a micro dosage level are we actually making ourselves susceptible you know just like 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 inoculation like children growing up playing in the mud they get ex, you know exposure to different kinds of germs and bacteria so they actually grow more resilient and by you know growing a child in a hermetically sealed container with no bacteria no interaction with the outside environment are we not actually creating a weaker child yes likewise by you know not having any expression of violence in our civilizations in our cities in our societies are we actually creating a weaker civilization and we i mean this what you say it just it links back to so much of what we've said but the the one i'm going to go with is the one linking the to the calibration of my strength of my thing it's like when when playgrounds for kids and we've spoken about this in in another episode i think it's like they are so sanitized in a way so as to never ever be able to cause harm injury kids then don't know then you have kids who you know instead of letting a kid climb a tree and learn how to climb a tree how high can i go because what's my limit how far is my reach what how you know if the branches are further apart than i'm long okay I, bad tree to choose <laughs> you know okay i have to it's like it's that calibration it's that figuring out what's my work area what's the range for me you know what's my reach oh it's here and it's here okay i can't do further than that huh okay and if i'm too small it's like it's if it's too little well then that doesn't work either because then i can't move it's like okay then i find my my optimal you know it's almost like a window of opportunity for me this is a tree that i can climb that's a tree i cannot climb because i can't even get up the first branch okay i will learn that but if we constantly take away the learning opportunity we are 
not giving ourselves the opportunity to calibrate, to learn, to grow into my strength, my agility, my reach, um, my ability to knock you, uh, punch you on the nose, uh, and then you won't ever talk to me again. Okay, that was a bad idea. <laughs> I have no you friends know? now. Nobody wants to talk to Nobody me. Nobody wants to play anyone. with me. Precisely. Why don't they do that? Hmm. Yeah, maybe because we are so, it's like we are so eager to, to help, to, to buffer. And it's like, hmm, yeah, it does turn us into fragile beings. You know, even with the example of me and the tree, the tree is still, is not inanimate per se, it's a growing creature, but it's still non-interactive. The tree is not going to try to climb me, right? So now when I replace the tree with another creature like me, right, two human beings trying to climb each other, wrestle, grapple, push, pull, that teaches both of us how far to go, how much to poke each other, how vital it is to play mischief with each other, right? And how much is it, of it is important to do? Like, I could just push your nerves just the right amount for you to pull you out of a slump and, you know, make you chase me across the field, right? Because you were just feeling low and sad and you were just sitting there and I started needling you and now you got angry and you chased me across the field. And by chasing me across the field, you felt exhilarated I... and excited and now you're happy and now we both fallen in a heap and you know just rolling around like silly kids playing around now we're both happy right but if i didn't push you to that little extent then you would be all alone in your slump if i pushed you too hard now you'd be crying in that slump and now i also realize that maybe i went too far right it's a learning process now if that before the process even begins or before the process concludes or before the process continues, if a chaperone were to pull us apart and say, no, 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 don't do that. You go play by yourself. Let her play by herself, right? And it's, that seems like an artificial resolution, whereas the organic, the natural way would be to allow some sort of conflict to happen allow for some sort of resolution to happen by itself which may not be ideal but nonetheless it's a step forward it's mm. not a static stuck situation it's a progression not a perfect reply not a perfect resolution but it's a progression towards something that will eventually become a harmonious status quo between the two individuals right mm that between two individuals can be between two nation states, between two cultures, between two, you know, continents. It can be anything. The scale is unimportant. What matters is the fact that by limiting to one extreme where we say no contact whatsoever, right? Talk it out. Mm, you're just limiting the tools of engagement, of interaction, of engagement, of, you know, resolution likelihood of resolution happening is going to be limited. If you go to full extreme and just say beat the shit out of each other and just see who's left standing, well, again, not so good, not so bad. 
But who decides what's the ideal space? It's only mutually acceptable by interacting. I mean, unless the two of us get into some sort of interaction, maybe it's a softer engagement, maybe it's a heated argument, maybe it's an all-out battle, maybe it's a quiet, two people just quietly sitting and looking at the sunset without a single word spoken. And at the end of it, both of them get up, walk away, hand in hand, no words were said, nothing was expressed, nothing needed to be expressed, still have, mm. we still have a step further, we still have progression. No one can decide what is the ideal situation except the two people with actual skin in that game. Mm. But now it's almost like the people with the actual skin in the game are given the least amount of importance towards creating that resolution or towards moving progressively further and we have a hundred third parties wanting to play their role making this all a better situation right and that's where the profiteers come into the game and then you know this the moment you open the space up to third parties yes but more often than not the good Samaritans are going to take a back seat to the bad profiteers. And, and I mean, I'm listening to you. It's, it's also this aspect of the violence of the formal gardens of what's supposed to be when it comes to gender. Girls are allowed to cry, they're allowed to be weak, they're allowed to be emotional, they're allowed to hug each other and hold hands and kiss each other and, you know, braid their hair and, and you know, they're not allowed to wrestle, to get dirty, to climb high into a tree, to be strong. Boys, vice versa. The opposite, right? They're not allowed to cry. They're not allowed to hug each other or hold hands or be emotional because take it as a man. No, but they are allowed to be strong. They are allowed to be fast and to be a little bit violent because, you know, boys will be boys. And I'm just thinking how that's like, that's a that's the violence of the formal garden. Here's the girl garden. Here's the boy garden. And woe you if you don't fit into one of those gardens. Then I'm going to make you fit into it because you cannot be a girl who wants to be in the boy garden. That doesn't work. Or the other way around. Or stand outside of both because that ain't me. You know, that's not okay either. So there's a lot of the violence. Uh -uh analogy or form can really like there's a lot of levels of that stack uh, and it's it's dangerous this is where the danger is isn't it this is the danger it's like when we when we in essence remove like you say, the skin in the game aspect of me being me, figuring out me, how strong can I be? How fast can I be? How tender can I be? How funny can I be? How, you know, loving can I be? How 
violent can I be? When we say, no, you're just allowed to figure out these three. And you'd better keep it within this narrow spectrum because if you go outside of that, it's not okay anymore. I mean, it used to be, yeah, sure, you can be loving, but you can only be loving towards a man if you're a woman. You cannot be loving towards a woman if you're a woman. You know, that's not that long ago. And it's still valid in, in places on the earth, right? So it's like, it is a, it is like when we step out of, try to step out of the game of life and, and force other aspects, other forms into it as if we are above it, beyond it, like it's not valid for us that, you know, it, it, it ain't good. Yeah. That's why I don't, I don't like this distinction of, you know, calling Oh, those were barbaric hordes and, you know, this modern civilization. We civilized the barbaric natives and indigenous tribes of the world and we created these, this modern civilization of peace and progress. I mean, I call bullshit because what makes you, you know, what makes people barbaric and what makes people civilized is just a mask that people wear. I mean, like in under this veneer of civilization, civilization, like the domesticated civilized world is a thin veneer, right? That's why we have so much crime. That's why we have so many, you know, people killing, dying, you know, raping, pillaging, murdering. All of that was supposed to be a thing of the past where, you know, armies would come vanquish our tribes and then rape and pillage our women and like, you know, steal up you know, resources and all of that. Oh, no, now we are peace-loving people. Really, then why is so much crime happening? How many people were raped, finished, murdered, and stolen, and things happening? Still, if it's just happening beneath the surface, that doesn't mean it's not happening, and it doesn't mean that the things happening beneath the surface are just an aberration. They're not. That's part of the expression of humankind, right? Not seeing what's happening not being privy to what's happening because the average individual growing up in society doesn't see this, doesn't wake up in the morning like in a, a slum in Bombay or a favela in Brazil and see things happening around them, people living in squalor. And if you look at it, people actually look a lot more happier in those places because there's such a high density of people that the very fact that they have so many people around them makes them happier. Even if they're living in supposedly a place of crime and poverty and violence you know everything that we're told don't go to a favela in Brazil don't go to a slum they like you know don't go to oh my god like El Salvador is one of the world's most dangerous places like you have tourist advisories it's ridiculous right I mean like how can you say that when the crime rate in most cities modern metropolitan cities across the globe is just as bad if not worse just because you don't see it on the surface mm. that doesn't mean the wireless doesn't exist and i feel like that that's the same with people today just because we have these perfectly prepared personas and like your 
personalities, the violence within is just as strong as just itching to get out as before. In fact, more so now because it's repressed, right? And you don't have the ability to shout and scream at low levels of intensity in your regular workplace. All of that is repressed. And when you go back home, you take it out against your partner, your wife, your spouse, your husband, your kid, you know, who knows what. Right, because it's the only place left. Because you can't do that at your workplace, because then you lose your job and then your livelihood and everything else associated with that. Right? How is that not violent? So it's almost like we're just hiding from the fact that we all are violent beings. And amusingly enough, the easiest way to get out of that violent streak is to actually allow it to express itself in a safer environment, in playgrounds. Like imagine. Both the Vladimir's, in this case, Putin and Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine, both had some sort of a role-play experience where they're put in this little kindergarten space and they said, okay, you know what, if, let's play this role game where Ukraine takes over Russia and then what would you guys do with it? What would Ukraine do if you were to take over Russia? And you have this whole scenario where you play it across timelines, across industries, across spectrums of society, and then you say, okay, this is my vision for what I'd do and how things would go about, and then you have this whole game plan, you play it all out, you have like, you know, AI, you know, data mapping, and you figure out the whole works, and you have statistics, and you have the whole reports, and this is how I would do, how I would rule the country, and then you have, you could put in a chance, you say, okay, what if you were to take over Ukraine, all of Ukraine, not just a tiny little eastern bit, but all of it, it's all yours, what are you going to do, right, and then that's the kind of stuff I would like to see in the U.S. Not, you know, old people just pointing fingers at each other and saying, oh, you did bad, you did good. You're not saying enough, you're not doing enough. Like, let's actually play with situations. Like, say, okay, if you were to take over that damn place, what the fuck would you do with it? Mm -hmm. Why are you so obsessed before, before taking that, before, you know, towards taking that old place for yourself, right? And what if you were to take over control of the other person, what would you do, right? And you... I would say like this is more an interactive space. You're creating a possible solution. You're creating awareness. You're creating open minds. You're making both the people think. It's not just about possessing. Oh, you have that. I want that. You don't have this and I'm not going to give it to you. I mean, it's, it's we're actually being rather infantile when, you know, you could actually grow and start playing more intricate games, but played in a safe structure. That's what the UN should be for, where you create, mm -hmm. it's a playpen where you create possibilities and you, you know, you, it's a safe space. A playground is essentially a safe space where you can play games which have less than real consequences, which have less than dangerous outcomes, right? So at the end of it, if you lose the game, you don't feel so bad because it was just a simulation. You win the game, you feel great, but it's not going to let it get to your head because it's just a simulation. I think that's why I feel like the importance of play is not just at a very simple, personal, individual level, but it can, you know, infiltrate larger organizations like the UN where you have to start bringing people out instead of just playing war games where you have two people, two countries playing together and just letting their you know, the armies play together once a year, twice a year. Why not role play games like this, right? This would be fun.
Imagine say, okay, you can invade us later. Before that, let's just play a mock battle. What, you know, we just take, you know, we play fight the whole scenario. And, and, and it's like, it would be really, really fascinating to see if, if, if it would work, if people would, in that situation, if they were able to let go of, oh, I'm not going to show them what I have. I'll just put in this little bit and I'll pretend as if, but really I would do this. You know, it's like because of this fear of winning, losing, because of this fear of loss of face, of ego, of but he still doesn't have this thing that I have, so I'm not going to even let on. You know, it's like, would, what would, what would be required to make that an honest game? Perhaps that's the word. And it's like an open game where it, where it is not, oh, I have this secret weapon back here, you know, yeah, I do have nuclear bombs. They don't know that and I'm not going to show them. <laughs> um, how would you open up? And I've been, for many years, I've been saying this about Palestine and Israel. It's like the diplomacy of it doesn't make sense to me it might make more sense if you kind of do what you say it's like okay i'm i'm palestinian and you're israeli okay i need to come in here and argue for your sake and you need to come in here and argue for my sake you know so that I'm guessing a little bit what the monk wanted the little boy to understand by tying the big rock on his back. It's like, yeah, this is what it's like for, for the, the frog. It's like, hmm, okay, how can I make it better for the frog? Um, like, so just because, and I, Maybe that's the, maybe that's the, the common denominator in the play scenario you say, the role playing. It's like, it is this shifting of perspective. What happens if, what if this, what if that, what might be then? Um, and, and being open and curious to see what, you know, where will that lead? It's quite incredulous because in a way it makes, even if, you know, it's, it's, the beauty of this is it's not about the outcomes at all. Because starting with the obsession that we need to find a solution, we need to find a solution, we need to fix this problem. That makes it work, right? And that's already got stress associated with it. That's already got pressure around it. It's like, <sighs> we have to do this. And like, you know, there's this, entire sense of gravitas to the situation like oh my god people are going to die and like it's almost like we're constantly you know trying to make things seem bigger than they are or trying to make them seem you know more scary or more dangerous or you know 
there's this obsession with wanting to make things seem more than they are, right? And it's not about doing the opposite, which is making seem, things seem lesser than they are, but it's about just not focusing on only looking at it, but actually playing with it, right? Let's not study the situation. Let's not analyze the situation. Let's not look from this perspective, from this perspective, from this perspective. Forget all that. Let's just dive straight in and play the game, right? That's what this kind of a role play does. It's like, oh, forget about what you think. Forget about what other people think. Forget about what he said, what she said, what everyone's saying, what everyone wants. Let's just play. Let's get into this. What if you were to take control? What if I were to take control? Let's let's do what you would do. Let's do what I would do. You give me your country. I give you my country for a day. Let's see what we can do with it, right? I mean, like, you have these things, you know, it's like, oh, I'm going to make you mayor of my town for a day, right? Just for a day. Let's see what you do. You have these silly things that happen, right? What if you were found or the, the editor of this magazine for this week, right? People do that. They pull it a random celebrity out of nowhere and make them the editor for a magazine for a week, right? Do that with a country. Like, okay, Putin, you want Ukraine so bad, why don't you rule it for a week? Yeah. Right? And, and You'll see like how it, fun it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? But we almost are so inclined to believe that, oh my God, he's going to get so power hungry. He's going to take all of Ukraine and he's going to take all of, you know, Turkey and Istanbul and all of those places. And before you know it, he's going to swallow up Europe. So there's, now what are you doing? You're just like, but I feel it's almost on the contrary. There's this belief that the appetite for power is insatiable. But I also believe that opposite is equally true that people get disinterested with it just as quickly, right? People can get disinterested the moment their desires are fulfilled, they couldn't give a fuck anymore, right? They're like, oh, I mean, it's like the guy chasing a woman who plays hard to get versus the one he gets is like, oh, well, okay, now I got you. What? Yeah. On to yeah. the next, right? Yeah. There's this, both are equally true. So how are you going to like, so maybe if he would just give him a bit of the pie, maybe he would be happy and maybe he'd just get so bored. Or maybe if you give him the whole thing, he'll just have indigestion and he'll just be like, oh my God, I don't want another country ever again. In fact, why don't you take half of Russia as well? <laughs> and you, don't ever, you never know. We always like to believe that the opposite is true and that people are power hungry, evil, and going to like, you know, destroy the world. Well, maybe that's true, but the opposite is equally true. There are people who couldn't give a damn who would probably give you all their property and, you know, just walk away into the sunset because they're bored with it all, mm. right? And and how do we know unless we play these games? Because it's not just speculation and data and predictions and possibilities and, you know, analysis and think tanks trying to figure it out. I mean, I really think playing brings about something that, it's very raw, very real, very intimate, and it loves people like, you know, to get a feel for it, right? If you were to live in my country for a week, for a month, right? It makes you more understanding of people from this part of the world, makes your system more accepting of the climate, the environment, the food, you know, 
there's a, sub, there's a complete change that happens, a systemic change that makes you more open to your, to my country, my culture, as well as more appreciative of your own country and your own culture. It's a win-win in both situations. Yeah, precisely, because that is like true, if that's the word. <clears throat> if I am open, <clears throat> if I'm open to the possibility, because I mean, I'm just as well, I've had, my brother lived in Thailand for 10 years. You know, there would, you would find these, old Swedes who, who would come there and, you know, live there for a couple of months on their meager retirement because it goes a long way in Thailand and whatnot. And some of them loved it, you know, and some of them were just picking on the fact that there aren't any sideways and if they're sideways, there are big fucking holes in them and the and the like concrete slabs are, you know, all messed up so you can trip and fall and you not to speak about how the electrical wiring is done and <laughs> the traffic is nothing like it is in Sweden. And, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> no, because if you want Sweden, you stay in Sweden. That's the whole point of it. You know, you're in Thailand now. It is not Sweden. You can look at it and see, huh. It has to be a lot easier to be in a wheelchair in Sweden than in Thailand because of that. Yeah. And then you would also see, but the Thai people are much more helpful and what would will get you anywhere, which might be a problem in Sweden because no, no, that's not my job. I'm not, you know, it's like, so if you're open to it, then yes, there is this, again, it's a calibration of sorts. Again, I am finding, I'm, I'm widening my window of opportunity, my work range when I see, oh, okay, that works in Sweden. It does not work in Thailand or India. Hmm, good to know, you know? Rather than, why doesn't it work here? It should work because it works in Sweden. Yeah, not very helpful as an attitude in general. We should have exchange programs for politicians, right? Politicians, from, like, you know, have student exchange programs where you go yes. spend a semester in some other country. You actually study in another country. We should send politicians from different parts of the world to actually serve a portion of their term helping another country govern itself. Yes. How cool would that be? <laughs> that would be awesome. Imagine the the Swedish agricultural minister all of a sudden being the Bangladeshian agricultural minister. It's like, yeah, you'll learn. Fuck <laughs> me, you'll learn a lot. Right? Or the infrastructure. Just go and be infrastructure minister in the U.S. and you're in for a... Wild ride, I think. Oh, that would be. And, and it is, it's like, there you have this playful aspect of it where, man, the learnings and what can I bring home? What can I do? And I've never, I've never thought about it like that. I've thought about it when it comes to, I worked for Hemschenston. Um, so caring for the elderly when I was a student at the university, like the, uh, 
you know, coming and helping them make breakfast and eat or cook dinner or clean or get dressed or shower or wash or whatever. Like, you can't do it anymore. Somebody will come and help you do it. And I also worked at uh, Homes for the Elderly, which a long time ago was called Longevården, which was like, this is, it's it's the long care. That's the literal translation of it. So it's like, at the end, that's where you go. Okay, and you can be there for, you know. And just the humbling experience of, you know, helping people go to the bathroom. When you've made a mess of yourself in your bed, when you all of a sudden got diarrhea and you didn't even have time to press the button, but, hmm, sorry, work it out. Or, you know, shaving old men. That's a lesson for a young girl like I was, or a young lady. It's like, wow, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Oh, this'll be fun. It's like, how can, how, you know, how can you, it's so much, and just, Cutting nails, fingernails and toenails. How do, you know, there's so much to that. And I've said for, ever since then, I've said politicians should do, you know, a summer stint uh, at one of these gigs to, to wipe some asses, you know, really to, to get to do that, to, to see. And it might be as valid to be, you know, the, the trash uh, collectors. Um, or whatever of those works that in essence actually are more sensory those are the works I would you know maybe standing on a industrial uh, you know uh, what do you call it Conveyor belt? Conveyor belt, thank you. You know, on an industrial conveyor belt. In a, in, you know, it's like where there's loud noises and maybe it's really hot because you're melting iron. And, you know, it's like those, the works where there's a lot of sensory input, again, as a way to get out of these boxed-in ways of being in the world where, you know, there is so many people who are just like me. You know, I don't have any calluses on my hands because I sit in front of my computer. That's my job. That's what I do. Um, you know, the sensory input is quite limited. But sending them off to be acting politicians, just just to be a Swedish riksdagsledamot, you know, the parliamentary member, uh, and going to to be a, a, in the UK parliament, you know, man, you'd learn something. And then pick an African country, go there, go to Kenya. What's it like in Kenya? Uh, I'm guessing nobody would want to go to Somalia or Afghanistan or somewhere where it's like, there isn't any real state, almost. Oh, it's like, yeah. shit. But that would be, that would be such a potential for learning. But shit. It's a sense of osmosis, right? Because just being in that situation, it's almost like 
that's why I think skin of the game is so powerful because it's literally like skin. It's semi-permeable membrane. It's like it actually allows things to transmit through and through. All you need to do is be present. It's like, yeah. you know, there's this process of osmosis where, you know, experience just allows information, insights, ideas just flow into you effortlessly. Right. All you need to do is just be present in that environment, in that space, in that year. And, and that's something that as people spend more time in power, they're, they're more isolated from all these experiences. The higher you go up in the echelons of power, the more you're, you know, you're just completely isolated with what's happening in the world. All you are privy to is what happens in your little space, your little bunker, your little building, your little White House. You have no clue what's happening in the world, like really feeling what's happening in the world. Like I remember growing up reading these stories where the kings in the past, Indian kings would, you know, hide in the, under disguise and walk through the marketplaces and, you know, and then they would catch someone doing something. And then I guess they, what the fuck do you care? You're just a crazy old man, you know, in a hood or a blanket. And then he, his men would come, take that guy away because he's breaking the law or something. But I found what's interesting is the fact that someone who's at the extreme highest authority in the state is also willing to come down to the lowest possible place just to experience what's happening in reality, just to experience what's mm -hmm. happening. Because if he, if he were to walk through the marketplace and all is rivalry, then people would automatically be at their best behavior and nothing untoward would ever happen and he would never know what's the reality of the state, right? Mm. And and I feel like that's something that's missing. Like how does, we've always looked at monarchy and demonized it and said that, oh my God, that is one evil man. And like the idea of an evil dictator has completely overshadowed the idea of a benevolent dictator because that's mm -hmm. what monarchy is. You're either a benevolent dictator or you're an evil dictator. And I don't know, I mean, like, I haven't studied history to be able to check the statistics, a percentage of benevolent dictators is to, you know, the ratio of benevolent to evil dictators. But just assuming that all monarchies and all, you know, dictators are evil and that the only way out is by democratic rule, I don't know. I mean, like, things really haven't seemed, seemed that much better to me. I mean, I don't know. But think about it. I haven't lived in a time of monarchy, but, like, I really don't see much difference from what happened in the past in history to now. On a wide enough timeline, things don't seem to have changed to the extent that we'd like. And I feel like that's simply because the person at the top is probably not a person at the top. It, you know, it's like we spoke about war. It's a whole bunch of people profiting behind the scenes. So similarly, it's it's naive to believe that one single person is making all the decisions. It's naive to believe that Biden is the president of the United States and he's that one single man who decides what's happening or, you know, who can veto everything that's happening. Putin is that one single guy who rules with an iron fist. It's kind of naive to believe that this one single individual, which makes me wonder if there is that much of a difference between a democracy and a monarchy. 
And if there is, then how much of it is different to us at the ground level? How much of life would change, right? Because every time we consider this discussion, we're always shown examples of evil dictators who repress, suppress their kingdom and their people. But it, I mean, that those weren't the only people in the history of mankind. In fact, they're probably just a handful. So I wonder how we can introduce that sense of compassion in our rulers, whether they're democratically elected, whether they, they rule by, you know, they seize power, right? Regardless yeah, of how they get it. it. Yeah. Right? How do we ensure, just because you're a nice guy from the outside, because you have a smile on your face and you feed little babies in election rallies, right? That doesn't mean you're a nice guy. Just because you wear this fancy hat on your head and you have this big twirly mustache doesn't mean you're an evil guy, right? How am I supposed to know? I can't, not by your appearances, not by, you know, whatever your spin doctors have put out as your personality. How do we build compassion in our children as they grow up? So that the ones that eventually become politicians have the same level of compassion as the ones who become nurses and the ones who become doctors and the ones who become healers and caretakers, you know. Or is it a matter of how do we not remove the compassion in kids as they grow up? Right. And, you know, we have also just been speaking about the, the kid who, who tied the, the stone to the, the back of the frog. So how do we allow, allow what is there in the, in the game of life is perhaps a better, again, it is this pruning and the, you know, it's like, no, we're not supposed to be like that. We come back to that. Uh, but I mean, in the nineties, I watched undercover boss a few seasons, which is you know, TV show that was just that you have the CEO on a big firm who was like, you know, all of a sudden he's down on the floor packing fish or, you know, doing the trash can run or whatever it is that, you know, the people at the base. And again, quite interesting to those episodes that I remember. It's like, yeah, the, the aha was m a lot of the ahas were in the boss who was all of a sudden down on the floor, you know, seeing, oh shit, this doesn't work. And why don't we do, you know, so that you see all of that, that is there and perhaps not communicated up or communicated up, but it never reaches further up. You know, it stops after three levels and doesn't ever get to the seventh level. But also when the because at the end of each episode, there was the reveal, you know, the, the taking off of the veil so that, yeah, I'm actually the CEO. I'm not Bob, the newly hired. Um, it's like, but you're, you're a decent guy. It's like, you're just like me. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like the both end of, of that experience. Um, but I also just finished reading, um, Extreme Ownership by Yoko Willink and Leif Babin. 
to U.S. Navy SEALs to uh, Britain uh, uh, a leadership book, and they do they have a a company doing leadership trainings and stuff. But one of the things that I really liked when it comes to this the the leadership was the fact that if I'm at the top. I'm asking questions sort of down the the chain of command based and, and the quality of those questions is determined by the quality of the feedback that I'm getting, the facts that I'm getting up the stack so that if I have confidence in that you on the ground, you're doing your job, you know what you're doing, you've thought about this, this and the other thing, then I can ease off. I won't have to ask as much. So there's one, I mean, it's, it's a worthwhile read. Uh, you have to kind of peel away this horrendous, uh, American nationalism, you know, win, win, win. And the, the enemy's evil, you know, period. And it's like, so you have to peel off those layers. And then there's a lot of good stuff in, in this book, I have to say, but also, in one of the situations, uh, Leif Babin, who was then, uh, Yoko was his superior. Leif Babin comes to Yoko and he's frustrated as hell because the upper ones, higher ups, need, you know, this 250 slide PowerPoint presentations with all sorts of shit and stuff that he just finds, you know, why are they asking this question? You know, have they been here? No, they actually haven't, Yoko says. Have we invited them? It was like, no, we actually haven't. So they do that. They invite their whatever CO from, you know, who's in a town in Iraq, 40 kilometers away to come and see what it's like where they're at, which all of a sudden gives him the, huh, okay, I don't have to ask this question ever again because you would not ever come back alive from an operation if you didn't have that contingency planned for. Okay, check. I no longer have to ask that. Um, so, so there is this, the flow, um, that I think is, you know, it, it can be sort of, um, You, you can use the sensory experience as a metaphor for it. It's like, when I have skin in the game, when I know, when there's a knowing in me of what it's like over here, then I can bring that with me and work my, you know, my stuff from whatever level I'm at. So yeah, having politicians do you know, a month or two in Bangladesh or in India or in, you know, just go to Norway for that matter. It will be different, right? Uh, it would probably, again, if they're open to it, man, the possibilities that could come from that. And the, I'm guessing the empathy and engagement Yeah. It's almost like 
at the best, what we have right now is a certain kind of tolerance towards others, right? It barely even moves into acceptance, right? Like, like the bare minimum is tolerance, and that's almost like the gold standard now. Oh, I'm tolerant of other cultures. I'm tolerant of other people. I'm tolerant of, you know, the whole inclusivity thing is like, oh, we're tolerant. And to the best in terms of, you know, just making it sound nice and politically correct, just say, I accept, we accept. We're just accepting of all different varieties and diversities of people. But I think it, it's not going to really make an honest, genuine difference until we celebrate those differences, celebrate what's unique about people. It just doesn't cut it. Just tolerating or even just stepping up to acceptance is still below par. Like the only answer is a complete rambunctious celebration. It's like, oh my God, it's the Swedish New Year. Let's celebrate, right? Oh my God, it's Diwali, it's the festival of yes. lights. And in it India. is a lovely festival. I love right? Diwali. I've been right? there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's the beauty of it. Like, that's why I say peace is not enough. Peace is passive. We need to play. Like, if we want world peace, no, we don't want world peace. World peace is a sterile environment. We mm. need world play. We need Ukraine to play with Russia. We need countries to play with each other. And, well, the Olympics were supposed to do that, but that's become more, you know, it's more of a, just beating thing like oh i got more medals than you we won the olympics we won you lost you suck we're the best right i mean it's just as bad it's no longer a celebration of every country that came in right and i feel like that's where we lost the spirit of play even in the games we share with each other right so when i say world play the Olympics, again, is not going to cut it just because all the countries of the world come together to play. It's not enough because you're still fighting. It's still a war. You're mm -hmm. just fighting for medals. It's like who gets the most gold at the end of the day? You know, it's not enough. I mean, it's, it's not how play. do we find mm -hmm. ways to play, right? And that's, you know, going there, eating each other's sweets. Oh, wow, that's like a Swedish desert. Oh, this is an Indian laddu. Like, how are you going to enjoy, celebrate, like, you know, you're going to dress up in, like, a, a beautiful kurta, I'm going to dress up in this awesome Swedish outfit, like, you know, this, we need to really celebrate the stuff between us, and, you know, and I feel like just there's something to do with that whole exchange program thing, like, it's, let's get kids to travel from different countries, let's get students, college students, let's get interns at different levels, let's get politicians, let's get people, let's get soldiers, let's get people from every walk of life in different countries to find some way to interact. And I feel like all of our more regimental methods of interaction, like for example, sports, are not enough because again it becomes competitive and that is equivalent to a war because if you look at most sport matches the audience members the supporters are literally at war with each other that my team is going to win your team's going to lose right again what's so different why are you so appalled if someone's now invading the country because like that's exactly the sentiment you show when they're fighting each other in you know in the football finals 
right? Like, how do you, how is it so difficult to believe that the spirit is the same? Just because mm -hmm. no one's dying in that place and someone's dying here doesn't make the core sentiment any different. The core sentiment is you want them to lose. In that case, you want them to lose the match and the cup. Here, you want them to lose their lives and their land. But you still wish loss for the other. You're not celebrating the other. You're not even accepting the other. You're not even tolerating the other. You just want annihilation of the other, right? It's just a different matter that over here, it's something which consequentially is not so big a deal. And here, it's because life's at stake. It's a bigger deal. So now you show distress and like, oh, how could someone do that? Well, that's exactly yeah, we the sentiment all we the show time. when yeah. our teams are fighting each other in, yeah. you know, in sport matches. Yeah. Yeah. As above, the real so below. Play? Yep. That's yep. what I'm looking for. I, I don't know where the answer is, but I feel like this sort of a cross-cultural exchange where people spend time with families from different countries actually living with local families that's where the magic is if i were mm -hmm. to live in sweden with a swedish family right if a swede were to live in india with an indian family right regardless of the profession where they come from what they do and why they're here with and what the profession of the person they're living with here none of that matters the fact that a local from one country lives with a local of another country lives lives eats, breathes, sleeps, eats with the same family, that's when things change. That's when minds open. That's when people, you know, not just living in a hotel, not just living isolated in a little bubble, right? So like a Swede living in Thailand in his own little hotel bubble is still isolated from the charm and from the experience of living with the local in their environment, eating their food, with their rituals. That's when the, you know, because the gut changes everything. It's so powerful. I feel like cuisine is one of those things that makes these changes. It's like the gut goes and changes all those connections here. And so that openness we're looking for, like why aren't most people opening up even if they live there is because this part doesn't change. And when no, I say the they gut, don't I eat mean, the local stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they go and, to McDonald's in Mumbai instead. <laughs> right? And eating it from the hand or, or the heart of a local person who made that food specifically for you. That's, again, I feel a big factor in changing. Like me cooking you a meal, even if I suck at it, with love, affection, and desire to, you know, to host you, to be warm and inviting you into my home, that has a different feel. That's what makes you accepting. That's what makes you open to a different culture. So if I were to order the same dish at a restaurant, it's still, yeah, it's something it would else. titillate my taste buds and probably make yeah. me accepting of the cuisine, but not the culture. The culture comes when we eat in each other's houses, food yeah. that is cooked with the purpose of treating the other as a guest and inviting them to our home. But I mean, my, my mother and aunt, my, um, my maternal grandfather was uh, a railway man. And so I know that 
thanks to that, somehow my my mother and aunt, as you know, late teens, young adults, were sent off and lived in France and you know whatnot. They took the train down and 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 lived. And I was a foreign exchange student in the U.S. when I was um, seventeen to eighteen for a year. And I'm. I was just realizing when you were speaking about that, that for me, it felt like a natural thing to do. It's like I had set my sights on that when I was younger and, you know, made it happen. And now I'm thinking neither of my kids have done it, even though my oldest uh, went down to Australia for a year, uh, like a gap year, uh, and did some au pair, which was just that. Just that. It was excellent. Um, so I was, first I was thinking foreign exchange student programs doesn't seem to be as common anymore. They were much more common when I was a kid, but then I'm not sure they were because I actually don't know that many people who have been on foreign exchange programs. I know a few, but so maybe it wasn't that common back then either. And that's one of the, you know, it is a big deal. It does cause you to learn a lot of things. <laughs> um, it was very, very influential in many ways, I'd have to say. And then now I have here in Malmo, I have a friend who's been involved in an organization that just, that do those exchange programs more specifically this family's boy you know is swapped with this family's girls swap <laughs> for a month or whatever youth international something or other i can't remember the name i'll type it in the show notes but specifically i think for that purpose to get to know to to take in to open up for the diversity of culture, of cuisine, of, of tastes, of, of smells, of, of habits, of when do you go up, wake up in the morning and when do you go to bed? And, oh, no, you eat at 10 o'clock. Okay, it's sweet of me at 6 o'clock. You know, it's like all of those things um, that... I think it's it's hard not to be impacted by it if you experience it. And I also have another friend who I know has set up a couple of years ago Swedish hospitality, I think she calls it Maria, um, where people who are traveling here to Sweden can, you know, if they're, and she's like a foodie, I think, uh, People can find it and they can book, you know, I want to come to dinner to your place. And and I would then, or you would then, you know, prepare a big dinner and, and I'd come and, and do that. So it's just for one evening, but it is the Swedish hospitality. You're invited into our home. So it isn't the restaurant experience. It is the home experience, um, which I'm I'm hoping that now what with COVID kind of no longer being deemed an, a pandemic will open up for more of those types of experiences again because something happens. 
didn't go warm like in the sense when you use the word hospitality it's like you know in india there's the saying that um atithi devo bhava right which means the guest is god right say it again atithi is guest devo bhava right so atithi or the guest is like god right so there's this concept which is kind of like baked into indian culture across the entire subcontinent it's like someone comes home as a guest as a guest it's like oh my god god's come home it's like they want to feed you they want to like yeah. stuff your belly full of food they want to ensure you live with a big smile face it's it's like it's, it's a concept that just goes across all the you know different diversity of cultures within the continent subcontinent but the idea is so strongly baked in that you you know you can never enter indian household and leave without eating or drinking something i can right. vouch for that <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh my god i don't want to eat i just ate oh my god you you, you just got to try a little bite of this a little yeah. bite of this oh how about this oh you know let me make my special chai for you like there's just no way you can be without tasting something right and when i say something that something is is actually just food but it's it's not just food it's a spirit of their gesture of hospitality right that's essentially what it is and i feel like the more people start doing this you know like your friend's concept the whole swedish hospitality there's another concept called uh, uh the mehfil right the mehfil is is these little impromptu not really impromptu they're planned as well they're little musical concerts that happen with hindustani classical musicians coming over to the home of a rich patron who invites other rich patrons and one of them houses the artist the singer the musician whatever in their home and invites everyone else in the vicinity to come for an evening a gala evening a concert but a home concert, home concert. right with a live musician in there he's talking to you at the end of the concert and he's looking at each and every one of you it's a tiny little room it's not a huge room where he has no idea who you are he can see and intimately connect with each one of the people in the room right the spirit and the rejoicing of that individual's ecstasy of his own artistic exploration is palpably felt by every person in the room at the end of it there's like a dinner and everyone's talking and networking and you're getting to meet a real life live musician who's following a tradition which is at least you know 5000 years old right and here it's like everyone knows each of their gurus like for at least 10 generations past right there's this sense of timeless culture being handed down and the average individual who has no understanding of art music and the nuances of it is still privy to all of this happening in someone's house right and the it doesn't even matter if the patron is rich or not sometimes it is like really not very well to do people still go out of the way they gather their pooled resources they bring that artist home they put it together but this concept brings the average non artistic non creative individual living in society in the mundaneness of their routine world 
and bringing artistic, creative musicians who live in their own world in the clouds, bringing them together, and it kind of like it's 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 an ancient tradition and still goes on today. It's not something that's publicized. You can't just go on to Google and find out Mayfuls near me. You can't really do that. It's more like a homegrown, homerun, word of mouth. You get a personal invitation or word of mouth. Yeah. 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 Exactly. From someone who knows him over there. Yes. Five blocks down. Okay. Right. So I feel like this is so cool. I mean, like this idea that you're keeping a sort of a culture growing in the past. This would have happened. A king would have done the same thing and invited his, you know, thousands of people in his city to come and watch. It filters down to the level of a single person bringing five of his friends together in his little one-bedroom flat to watch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's like it crosses across these scales. It doesn't have to be 10,000 people. It doesn't have to be even 10 people. But the idea that we share a meal, we share cuisine, we share culture, and we allow that to exchange between each of us by inhabiting a certain space together at a certain time. And again, it's the sensory experience of it. I can't do that from here. I would have to be in the home of your neighbor. No, it's like to really feel and smell and experience all of it. Yeah. How you said last time, you said that you were um, working on figuring out how to do more physical play you know you you were talking about a physical play space um have you thought anything more about that or you've just been out no, riding I... your motorbike or something <laughs> yeah i just took off on my new bike and i was just like ah oh, i you know the idea that physical play is so important is is you know, it's something that I want to spread out, but, you know, with the whole COVID thing, people are still iffy towards sharing physical spaces together. But I think, like, that is the way forward. So I'm really expecting as things open up in the next few months, people get less wary and more accepting of inhabiting, you know, personal enclosed spaces together. I really want to do something of that sort where, you know, it's essentially going to be a kindergarten right? But for adults, right? The exact same thing little kids do. Play with objects, toys strewn all over the place, right? Play with each other, right? Explore contact with each other in every which way possible. Because like, like we said, it's not just those three silos, right? It's something explored out of that, right? If people are so averse, if if a caress on the cheek is considered sensual and if the same thing done harder is considered a combative experience, a slap, what are the, you know, the, In between. the nuances between that? Where, where are the calibrations between that, right? When was the last time we just touched someone's face just to say hello? Oh, so that's what your face feels like, mm. right? We don't do that. It's it's weird. It's awkward. We can shake each other's hand, and for some reason that isn't weird. But if I would shake your nose, that's weird. If <laughs> that's I would shake really your ear, weird. <laughs> exactly right. Like why? And 
there's that weird thing again the idea that certain eccentricities like what's weird what's normal is something that i do every day what's weird is something that i've never done before that's all there is the only difference between normal and weird is something i do often is normal something i never done before is weird right and i feel like that's another reason why we fight with each other in terms of countries and conflicts because we haven't interacted with each other enough. So what the other person is doing is weird. Ukrainians think Russians are weird. Russians think Ukrainians are weird. Why? Because you haven't interacted with each other enough. We haven't interacted with each other enough to stop seeing each other as alien, as weird, as strangers, as eccentric people whom we should either annihilate or crush their spirits enough for them to follow our way of life. So that they're no longer weird to us, right? It's it's as simple as that. And, and I feel like, at a smaller level, that's what I'm trying to do. Like create this play space where, you know, eventually want to bring in. I don't want it to seem like some sort of a uh, a peacemaking place, but you know, some sort of a playmaking space. Bring your worst enemy. Bring your your lover you're having a quarrel with. Like come in for a play session and start playing with each other. Right outside of the role that you have siloed yourself into. Right, imagine the Ukrainian president and the Russian president playing a game of rock paper scissors. Whoever wins get Ukraine. Hey, what the fuck are you nuts? <laughs> okay, well, would you rather just me come and bomb the whole damn fucking place? All right, suit yourself. Now that, it sounds ridiculous. Like, this is exactly when I know that play works because it sounds absolutely preposterous and silly to have a resolution that let this whole thing be settled with three yeah. rounds of rock, paper, scissors. Best of three. Whoever wins takes whatever you want. Sounds preposterous. No, that's ridiculous. How can we solve, you know, Precisely, and what skills. doesn't sound preposterous is is Russia entering Ukraine. It's like, oh yeah, it's like, what the fuck? Why isn't that really preposterous? It's like, yeah, we've been expecting that. You know, we've seen it coming for many. You know, it's like, wait, hey, um, yeah, it is. It is fascinating how we. How normative norms are, um, and how weird whatever doesn't play along that specific angle, that specific line. It's like there you're allowed, but if you stick out even just a little tiny bit, mm -mm, weird. Can't yeah. have that. So that's, I think that, you know, no matter what we do, I mean, the amount of content we speak about, I love what I'm, in fact, I'm so grateful we're having this conversation because this is us playing along that spectrum of dialogue versus all-out conflict, all-out war, full-fledged war. This is it. This conversation right here is us exploring that spectrum. What we're saying might, might sound blasphemous, might be taboo, might be crazy, might be construed as just two people talking off the top of their heads and not having any skill in the game. I don't care. The idea is that we're having a conversation where all perspectives can be explored 
without shame, without fear. I, I can't, I, if I'm leaving this feeling, oh my God, I'm so ashamed that I said that. If I'm, if I'm entering the space feeling, oh my God, I'm so scared I'll say something that isn't politically correct. What kind of free world am I living in anyways? It's ridiculous. Right? I'm just not a free world. Then why am I so appalled by the fact that one country is invading another country? I'm not living in a free world anyways because I'm not free in here to say what I think, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. It doesn't matter what I think it is. The fact that I'm able to express it to someone else, even if it is ugly, whether it's bad, whether it's good, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, the fact that I can say it, and the fact that you have the freedom to listen without feeling that overwhelming need to either accept what I say or to outrightly reject what I say. The fact that you have that freedom in that space to say, oh, let's see what Reddy has to say before dismissing it as, oh, that guy's off his head. Oh, oh my God, he's like, absolutely right. I have to follow everything else. I'm going to drop all my ideas and just do what he said, right? Again, we seem to be finding ourselves between these two binary extremes. And I, that's why I love play. It's essentially bouncing between these extremes. I love, you know, that's my favorite version of play. Just take two extremes and start bouncing between them. I love mm -hmm. you. I hate you. Now let's start playing between them, right? I want you. I don't want you. Let's start playing between them. I'm good. I'm bad. Let's start playing between them, right? Just dialogue, just work. Now let's start playing between them. And I feel like this is such a simple experience or, you know, conceptual understanding of play. Like even on this trip that I went on, the biking trip, I looked at the whole experience as exploratory play rather than learning via explanatory study. Right? I got a new bike, haven't ridden in over a year, over a decade. Right? I'm clueless, I'm new on the bike, and I'm all confused. It's not the kind of bike I've ridden before. It's like, you know, I've ridden a bike two decades ago, and like, it completely changed everything since then. So I'm like falling all over the place. I'm like riding into trees. I'm making a complete fool of myself. All in the wild, not in a closed playground, not in a closed racetrack, but in the wild. Not the ideal of situations, not the best of playgrounds. But that's the kind of person I am. I like to throw yeah. myself into the deep end because when I struggle is when I learn fastest and best, right? It's just my personal preference. And I found that over years, this is the kind of person I am. There are kids who walk into the shallow end of the pool and then they slowly start splashing until they're comfortable. To you move jump into the in end. the dive deep end. I jump into immediately. the deep end. Yes, it's like, oops, I can't swim. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, that's ready. Right? And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> and I come I better out and figure this out <laughs> or die trying it's like just yeah. that I mean like I, being on that edge makes it more playful for me right mm. but regardless of the level of difficulty the fact that I'm exploring without an external chaperone without an ideal way of riding without a specific progression chart laid out without an instructor barking instructions in my head constantly. The fact that I'm doing all of this is what I consider exploratory play. I'm just like playing, trying to figure out things, letting things come out to the, you know, to the surface on their own, right? 
versus if I were to study, I bought the bike on Saturday, I took off on the strip on Sunday morning. That's how much time I spent thinking. That's it, nothing else, right? But if I were to have done this the traditional way of study, okay, this is your bike. Spend one week understanding the parts of your bike. This is your bike. Spend two weeks moving across in this particular pattern. Spend the third week slamming the brakes and understanding the clutch and the throttle. Right now, if I were to do this, I'd still be here in week two. But here, mm -hmm. I've already covered 2,500 kilometers and made a whole bunch of mistakes. And luckily enough, I survived to tell the tale. And you had fun. Yeah, right? That's the thing. And how can we make these sort of exploratory experiences accessible and available to every single individual regardless of the age? Especially the ones who are expected to know all the answers and who would be shamed for saying, I have no clue how to ride a bike. So mm -hmm. I'm going to make a bunch of mistakes. And I'm so looking forward to those mistakes. Right? Now, that would be, you know, a 40-year-old man saying that, no, 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 no. You're supposed to know the answers or you're supposed to go to a professional and get the answer. That follow the answers to a T. Right? But I, I want that play to be the acceptance of looking foolish and going, taking my own words when I said acceptance is not enough, but we need to celebrate looking foolish. So the whole play space is just a place where people can come in, do things that make them feel foolish, look stupid, you know, feel silly, but do them just because that's what we do. We're creatures born to play. That's all we were born for. War may be one game in that whole spectrum of yeah. play, right? Not the only game. And yet, not a game that needs to be abhorred and avoided, but just given its due, but to the extent that we understand it's just one teeny weeny little game in the grand spectrum of play. Don't make it the end all and be all of all games, nor try to push it away and say, no, we're going to eradicate one. We're never going to have that game ever again in this playground. Doomed for doomed for failure. Yeah. So tell me, where did you go on your bike? Where are you? I've forgotten. Delhi? Oh. No. So I rode the bike from Bangalore yeah. to Bombay and back. And how far is that? It's uh twelve hundred kilometers one way. But what's interesting is, I so there are like three roads to travel. One is a national highway, which is like straight and narrow. Yeah, the boring one. Just, <laughs> the boring one. You can do super high speeds and you can yeah. just keep going on. It's incredibly one of those rare highways, which is like, you know, typically traveling across India in the past, a national highway is someone else's backyard. That's something yes. interesting and unique about India that yes. this could be the pipeline between two very important cities and, you know, economic capitals of the city, etc. 
But a villager along the road is going to think that that is the place where I like to take my cattle to graze. I'm going to yes. go through that thing. Yes. And if your truck is transporting the most incredibly vital, you know, resources yes. across the country, I don't give a fuck. My goat yep. need to cross the road. Yep. So I'm going to go, right? And I love that about my country. And I still do. But they have made now specifically cordoned off highways, which don't allow, you know, intersection so, from either side. So those highways, because that's one of the things when I was working with India and outside of Bombay, driving on the, on the highways is like, well, you're going along, then you have to brake, slow down because there's this big bump. Okay, then you speed up again, then you have to brake, slow down because there's this bump. And I think it is precisely because there would be so many road kills otherwise <laughs> that it's like you need to keep the, the speed down. Uh, but for me, it was just, this is Indian fuzzy logic. This is not. But then I understand that they have now made cordoned off highway so that you yeah. can't. Yeah. Got it. But those are boring. Those are so boring. Yeah. So I yeah. just got off. As I'm not staying on this highway, I went off into the arterial roads. I went off to the state highways, took the long and, you know, winding roads across the mountains. And even better, I found one of these lesser used coastal highways, which goes along the entire coast from Goa to Bombay. Oh, so you went kind of that way and then up. Yep. You went to cross and up. Yep. Mm -hmm. Right. So... Mm -hmm. First, I went up for a little bit along the straight highway. Then I mm. went across, which was yeah. the mountainy highway. Yeah. And then I went along, up again, along the coastal mm, highway, the coastal. where I could see the sun, the, the beach. I could see the sea on one side and the mountains on the other side. On the other. Right? And Gorgeous. every once in a while, there'd be a little river which would stop the road and then there would be a ferry. So I get onto the ferry. The ferry takes me across. And then I continue again. And the same journey, which could have taken me just two days with a single night halt if I didn't want to ride at night, which I don't like to do, took me five days because I kept meandering through all of these routes and there's snow and then there would be like, I would be going like, and then suddenly there's like some animals and I'm like, slow down again and then again I'm just, then again, it's like they're like school kids. Oh, it's school time. Everyone's left and there's a whole bunch of school kids and they slow down again. And it's so interesting that what I first initially felt was like, oh, damn, there's someone in my path. Like it was initially, it was, a, it was an, a moment of frustration. It was irritation. It was annoyance. But over time, I actually started celebrating it. I started realizing that those Incidents are serendipitously reminding me to enjoy the journey, to enjoy yeah. every interruption, good, bad, or ugly. The speed breakers are a reminder that the path of life isn't a straight thing. It's never going to be. And I can be frustrated by those, those you know, interruptions or I can celebrate them. I can mm -hmm. be annoyed with the school kids who crossed my path or I can stop and wave out and smile and take a selfie with them, right? I could like, you know, curse the cow that walked into my path or I can say, wow, 
look at that magnificent creature like wow man i never ever saw like look at the dignified majesty of that being wow like it's a reminder right like that that the speed of getting from point a to point b on the map is the least important part of my journey right and the most important part of the journey is the part that i haven't mapped out and it's going to happen entirely serendipitously by itself right so everything changed the, the the destination was the same but then the path changed the map changed i would speak to people they would give me suggestions i'd plot those out in the map and i'd start following that and then something else would come up on the next place and then i'd do something else and like you know there was the sense of i want to get to a certain location or a certain destination but i also want to uncover or to allow things to happen that are better than what i can possibly want for myself mm. right i mean it's so naive for me to think that i know what i want for myself it's so easy to believe that i know what i want right but the reality is what i think i want maybe just like 10% of what the entire spectrum of things that i can enjoy and if i'm going to limit myself that no i want this and i only want this and nothing else and i want it exactly the way i want it well that's cool i mean if your will is strong enough you'd probably get exactly that because you know it's not too hard i mean like the universe isn't so mysterious at all all you've got to do is just wish for it and things really do happen yeah but it's so limiting i mean it's so much more exploratory to allow things to happen which could be far beyond anything that i ever imagined which also requires that openness that openness of being willing to play with whatever wants to happen uh, i had an experience um just a few days ago we had a i have a, a small patreon community for tankespian where we do a monthly zoom call and the topic for this month was am i enough which i is like yeah this is going to be an interesting topic and you know it is like these conversations like you don't know what happens is usually not more than 10 people who come but we always have the most enormously rewarding uh, flowing meandering conversations where you know but this one was probably the most profound one for me uh, and i've been doing this for a year and a half Yeah, year and a half. Wow. Where it became so clear that this was a question that opened up so much and that each and every one of us who partook comes at this question from a very specific place. And with everybody sharing, it just opened up this enormous experience of there is no way 
I could have made that happen if I had tried to, okay, here's the agenda. We start with a little round and then everybody can answer the question and then we do this and then we have, you know, it's like, there's no way I could have conceived of what wanted to happen Tuesday night. But what wanted to happen was a profound for me, really, really deep. A very emotional experience, but the, the, the ability of us all, I would say, uh, but of course also me for being, I am the host regardless, you know, I have opened the space to be able to take in these total opposites and like you say, really play with them. When you say that, huh, I've never thought about that. You know, like, wow. And what does that open up in me? And, you know, just really, like you say, bounce in between the, 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 the different places of where people come at this question. It was, it was fantastic. Um, so allowing for that, opening for that, being willing to play with whatever wants to happen, um, it does bring you rewards that are out of my ability to conceive of them. I couldn't have made that happen. It happens. It emerges. I can't make it. Because I wouldn't know how to make that. Because I wouldn't, you know, I come from, I come from my place to this question, am I enough? <laughs> I don't, I didn't know <laughs> that there were so many other places you could come to this question to, too. It's like I could see mine and a few others in my head because I've spoken to people. But there were viewpoints that opened up here that were just beyond my imagination. Um. And that's how we grow, right? Because it's just as this sense of expanding horizons. It's like the horizon is only as far as the eye can see, right? That's that's nowhere close to how far we can actually go because that's infinite. <laughs> it's, there's no end to it. And if we're going to be stuck with as far as we can see can for see. ourselves. Meh. I mean, like, it's like we're limiting the playground to our own, you know, experience of, it's almost like the whole social distancing thing. And yeah. it's like six feet away, you know, is, is all I can see is all I want to perceive is my kingdom. It's like, I mean, oh my God, there it goes again. The whole idea like this is my kingdom, right? It's only as far as you can see. It's only as far as you can plot on the map. And it's still not enough because you can always keep plotting more spaces on the map, right? But this idea of infinite space within, like, how little a game am I playing if I'm just going to start occupying little points on the map and expanding my borders, a tiny little map, when the idea of infinity is right inside of me, right? Like, 
our thoughts can go beyond anything we ever imagined. But the best of our attempts to possess land is, is, is just a little space on a map. It's such a little game to play. I mean, it seems like the most powerful game on the planet is occupying land. I'm going to take over, you know, Ukraine, Iraq, Vietnam. I'm going to take over all these places. I'm going to rule the entire world, right? Like, oh, well, I mean, like, what what's happening inside of you, right? Like, I remember the story of, um, I think it was Alexander who reached the borders of India and he wanted to, like, go in and try to annex India as well. And then he met these holy men, sadhus sitting on the banks of the river, just sunning themselves. And he was like, uh, you got to move because me and my army have passed. He says, it's not your land. And he says, I can make it my land if I want. He says, it's not even my land. It's not your land. I can sit wherever I like. You can't do anything. And I'm going to move because I'm sunning myself. Right and he says, you're just a naked old man. Like, you don't know anything. I own, you know, all of these armies. I've vanquished so many countries and I'm not going to vanquish further. He says, you, you can't vanquish your own self. What are you doing vanquishing all these people, right? And there's some story about how he, you know, predicts Alexander's death, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the point that he made was interesting about the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, the the lands that you really want to conquer, the armies that you want to vanquish, are right here, right? The belief that one has, the parts of one's perception that we want to conquer, that we want to overcome, that we want to, you know, possess, right? Win. Create, yeah, win, right? Like charity begins at home, so does yeah. conquest, I guess. Yeah. Speaking about conquest, I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. You say Bombay. Mm -hmm. You don't say Mumbai. Yeah. You want to tell me why? What's the what's the story? Because I I have grown up saying Bombay. And then when I was there, which was, you know, I worked with India 2007 till 11 or something. Then it was Mumbai. So I relearned. I offloaded Bombay and relearned Mumbai. And so now it's, it's like, if it's like, and I know there's a lot of, you know, I know some of the stories, but I'm a little bit curious about 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 it if you want to share interestingly is like there's it's it's mostly a response to the anglicization of the names right bombay is the name given by britishers and like same with bangalore madras all of these cities were names given by the britishers because they couldn't pronounce the local name right so once at some point in recent history, people started waking up and said, oh, we should get back our original names, right? So Mumbai became, Bombay became Mumbai again, and uh, Madras became Chennai, Bangalore became Bengaluru. So they essentially reverted back to the non-anglicized, non-anglicized names. And uh, 
But in a sense, in the spirit of things, things haven't really changed. Right? So in most cases, I just still stick to the old names just because I don't feel that there's any change just because the pronunciation or the spelling has changed on the map, on signboards, on the aircraft, uh, the airport rosters. Just because those have changed, I don't feel like a grand change in the spirit of the place or the people. So I'm not really too caught up on making the changes unless it's on like an official document and I have to follow rules. But in a sense, I haven't made that change in local balance when I speak to people or when I'm thinking in my head, I haven't made the change. So you so say Madras not, and you say Bangalore, you say Bombay. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. Hmm? But in a conversation, if I'm in an interaction with people and things just, you know, it just, I just go with what the majority have to say. And mm. just like, okay, everyone's saying Chennai. And then, yeah. like, typically my mind works uh, very like chameleon. It kind of like just plays along with what's happening. Not because I'm trying to people please, but because it's just the path of least resistance, right? Unless I feel like I need to specifically make a point to a certain opinion or a viewpoint, I don't need to, you know, create conflict or mm. make a point just for the sake of it, right? That's how it is. But unless there's like a really important point to be made at that point, then I'll be like, okay, I'm not going to go along with what everyone's saying. But in most cases, I'm just like, if everyone's saying Chennai, okay, well, so be it. If everyone's saying Madras, okay, so be it. But if you really ask me for my opinion, I'll say Madras because it's just the name I grew up with in my head. Yeah. In, yeah. As most of us, it's, you know, it's like kind of like what we remember, as what we play, the games in our heads as kids, those usually remain the games that we continue playing as adults. Unless some sort of a traumatic or, you know, life-altering incident changes perceptions. That's another reason I feel like play is so vital because really speaking, most of our opinions and perceptions are not a result of collegiate level education which supposedly is supposed to cement our opinions and you know perspective of life but it's more of the things that happen at very early childhood like anywhere between like 5 15 are the earliest years of you know strong molding of an adult yeah yeah you know perceptions and things so i really don't spend much time beyond that i'm constantly going back to that phase of my life where I look at how I lived and what I thought, and unless I see a need to specifically change that because circumstances have changed, I don't try to reprogram myself at all. Cool. It, and it's fun. I have a friend who says that common sense, sunt vernuft in Swedish, common sense is basically just all of the um, preconceived notions that you've learned up until the age of 18 that you're then stuck with. And that's why what's common sense to me isn't common sense to you. And then I can go, what the fuck? Where is his common sense? Yeah, because <laughs> I'm, I'm molded this way and you're molded in another way. And that's why there's no one common sense, you know, because we all have those preconceived notions and, and like assumptions and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. Fun. It's interesting. And I mean, because it's, 
as a as a foreigner, it's like, you know, again, it's like, where's the respect? What's the respectful thing to do? Do I say Bombay? Do I say Mumbai? Do I call it Beijing or Peking? Or, you know, it's like... And, and, and I think these are part of the things that we're not supposed to talk about. So it's like, because of the fear of, it's like, it isn't play, play area. It's no, this is very, very serious. And damn you, if you get it wrong, you know, because then I can be offended and, you know, but rather it's like. To be able to have some fun with it, to play with it, to ask the questions, to hear, uh-huh, that's how you, mm, interesting, you know, to, to be allowed to, to put my foot in it now and again, because <laughs> um, that's how I learn. That's how I will calibrate again. Aha, uh -huh, bad idea to do that. Okay. No way. Um. Yeah. You know what? We have had five conversations ready. I know. And it's just, <laughs> I don't know how. I had the same feeling when, uh, when season one was about to end. It's like, how am I going to not continue to have these monthly conversations? But. I know you won't go anyway, and I nope. won't go anywhere either. So, right here, ready to play. Yeah, yeah, and that makes me so happy. I hope you check your email and check the doodle that I sent out because I want to have a pod recording conversation with all of us from season two, if I can. Wow. Uh, I did that with season one. It was, and it turned into two, two episodes because we couldn't all fit in on one date, but. It's a really, really lovely experience to get a little bit of reflection uh, of the different, kind of like the question of, am I enough? It's like different perspective. What's, what's it been like? So check that, please. It's and, a cross-cultural exchange between podcasters across. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. Precisely. Precisely. So do that and make a great day. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that we could have this conversation, especially the difficult subject that we, you know, that we tackled, that we played with, because it's exactly these difficult subjects of, you know, great weight, gravity that we need to play frivolously with, right? Like play isn't meant to be played frivolously, play is meant to be played seriously, right? Yeah. It feels like a frivolous activity, but we need to start playing with these subjects that seem to be, like just yeah. because it's a matter of life and death doesn't mean we can't play with it. I'm glad we did. I am Thank too. You, and it feels like it was very opportune what with what's been going on today. So... Thank you for that. It helps me also, again, open up <laughs> to see that, oh, yeah, 
some of the things that we take for granted as normal really aren't. <laughs> They're the weird things. It's like, so, yeah. Have fun. Thank yes, so big much. hug. Big hug. Big, big, big hug. Big, big hug. Bye. Yep.